Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GERD Help. The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDHelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. Welcome everybody to our Tip Talks Tuesday. Thank you for joining us this evening. My name is Andrea Millers with Endogastric Solutions. I'm very excited today to have our special guest, Dr. Andrew Nett. Um, Thank you for being here, Dr. Nett. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrea. You're welcome. So we, we do have potentially another guest that might pop in. He is in surgery right now, um, but his name is Dr. Greg Josart and he's in surgery. So hopefully um, he'll be able to join our show in a little bit. Um, but before we, I wanna remind everyone this is a live. So at any time, if you have any questions, please feel free to type your question in the comment section and we will do our best to answer all of your questions. So a little background on Dr. Nett. He is a board certified gastroenterologist affiliated with California Pacific Medical Center and the Sutter Medical Network. He obtained his medical degree from Baylor College of Medicine and completed his internship, residency, and gastroenterology fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco Disco School of Medicine. Uh, his clinical interests include the diagnosis and treatment of GERD, acid reflux, advanced therapeutic endoscopy, Barrett's esophagus, biliary disease, clinical trials and research, colon cancer, colonoscopy, as well as complex interventional endoscopic uh, conditions and procedures. So welcome, Dr. Nett, and thank you for being here with us tonight. Thank you for having me, and thank you uh, to everyone out there for joining. Um, I'm excited to to talk about this topic and answer questions uh, that arise from the public. Fantastic. Thank you. Just a little background on Dr. Joe Sart in case he is able to join us. He is uh, Dr. Nett's um, surgeon partner for anti-reflux surgery, and his background is he is a board-certified general surgeon, excuse me, director of minimally invasive surgery at, the, at his health system, and has been recognized as a center of excellence surgeon. He has extensive experience in minimally invasive surgery of the gastrointestinal tract and endocrine, endocrine system and provides weight management and weight loss services as well. So hopefully he can join us tonight um, and, and join our conversation. So uh, again, thank you, Dr. Nett, for being here. Um, we do have a couple of slides that Dr. Nett will be able to present today, but let's just get started and talk about GERD a little bit. Um, if you don't mind, uh, Dr. Nett, can you kind of explain to us what GERD is and you know what could patients that are suffering from GERD potentially, um, what kind of symptoms would they have? Sure. 
Yeah, um, just to comment real briefly. So Dr. Josart, if he doesn't join us, you know, it's great to have his perspective to talk about some of the joint or hybrid endoscopic and surgical procedures we're doing. But if not, I can definitely share the, the GI or endoscopy, endoscopy side of things. Um, and uh, hopefully, you know, one day we can have him join us in a future session. Um, but to start off, GERD, you know, is just an acronym for gastroesophageal reflux disease or essentially reflux um, of acid coming from the stomach into the esophagus. Uh, technically, you know, acid reflux is a normal uh, occurrence and it happens in everybody uh, at certain levels. Really, when we, we think of it as a disease or when we call it GERD is when there's exposure of acid to the esophagus or even tissues higher up in the throat. Uh, and there's resultant damage of tissue or um, the acid exposure actually elicits symptoms. Um, so, you know, the most common symptoms are the, what we call the classical symptoms include heartburn, chest pain, uh, acid brash, which is uh, technically like a sour taste in your mouth, or actual regurgitation where you feel like you have acidic fluid or even food come up into your, your mouth. Um, those are the classical manifestations, but a lot of people also suffer from what we call extraesophageal symptoms or symptoms um, related to other tissues being damaged uh, or irritated above the esophagus. And that kind of relates to what people may have heard of um, as laryngopharyngeal reflux or LPR. A lot of these symptoms are, are, are common and um, what people can experience is basically chronic cough, if they have asthma, potential asthma exacerbation, um, even recurrent sore throat, or sometimes this can be related to uh, recurrent sinus or ear infections as well. Right, perfect, thank you for that. I don't know if this is the right time. You wanna pop up your slides and, and walk through. Um, I think we were gonna discuss what are like treatment options for um, for GERD. Uh, so we can probably go through those right now, Dr. Nett. Yeah, de yeah, definitely. Uh, and I don't wanna take too long uh, on these slides. Uh, it, it'd be better just to have a chance to talk with everybody and answer questions. But definitely, if there's anything that I don't spend enough time on, um, feel free to have us readdress this uh, in, in the latter part of the talk. Um, but here's my uh, part of the team, I should say, at um, CPMC. So uh, I'm part of a, a group with uh, three other interventional endoscopists. Um, uh, we're called Interventional Endoscopy Services. And we really pride ourselves and work hard to, to essentially replace surgery wherever possible as, as a, a method of treatment for a variety of GI disorders. Um, the, you know, the IES, or our group at CPMC, is actually the birthplace of a number of in, uh, devices and procedures um, involving advanced uh, therapeutic maneuvers that are now done endoscopically rather than surgically. Uh, and, and we're very um, grateful for the chance to be involved in GERD since it is such a widespread uh, and oftentimes a debilitating problem for people. Um, so we could start on the next slide. Um, we know, uh, you know, this is just, I, I, we're gonna be talking about some different devices during the, um, the talk tonight. Uh, and I think it's important just to disclose any financial interest to patients. And, and I just want everybody to be aware I have no financial relationship with the companies um, that we potentially would be discussing or with any of the devices or device makers. Um, <clears throat> we can go to the next slide. 
So GERD is the most common GI diagnosis that's dealt with in the outpatient setting. It's also the most frequent reason people are having upper endoscopies. Over 60 million Americans experience heartburn at least once per month. Um, and in a population-based survey, about 20% of people have symptom symptoms within the last month. About 5% of people have clinically significant or recurrent uh, issues with heartburn and acid regurgitation. So overall, almost 40 million uh, outpatient visits occur every year for GERDs is a, a very common and difficult problem. Next slide. Um, we talked about the typical and atypical symptoms of reflux. So we could actually go to the next slide, which talks a little bit more about the actual uh, tissue damage manifestation. So what happens in the esophagus is that you get uh, inflammation and, and sometimes it's just irritation and symptoms related to that. But endoscopically, we'll see often um, breakdown of the tissue lining and development of ulcers that can form in the esophagus as a result of acid injury. Chronic inflammation can actually lead to scar tissue formation, which results in narrowing of the esophagus that can cause difficulty swallowing or food to get impacted or stuck in the esophagus. Long-term injury also can result in what we call Barrett's esophagus. So that's a unfortunately a, a precursor to cancer potentially. Um, but essentially what Barrett's esophagus is, is that the lining of the esophagus is not uh, very well adapted to dealing with injury from acid. As opposed to the esophagus, though, your intestine, which is below the stomach, is used to dealing with acid since acid by design is constantly coming down from the stomach. So the body will switch the lining of the, of the esophagus in response to acid injury to something that looks more like intestine tissue, which is good because it's protective of, against the inflammation and the ulcer formation but unfortunately it does carry a risk of cancer. And cancer, of course, is the most dreaded complication or fear from long-term acid reflux. Above the esophagus, we, we see laryngitis or actually inflammation of the throat and vocal cords, uh, increased asthma exacerbations, people can have erosion of their dental enamel. And then um, what's also been relatively recently recognized is that as acid reflux, um, occurs and that fluid washes down into the lungs, you can have repeat injury over time of the lungs. And this leads to something called interstitial lung disease. Uh, next slide. So there's been, unfortunately, a very alarming growth of esophageal cancer over the last uh, 50 years or so. Since 1975, we know that there's been a 600% increase in esophageal cancer. Um, the risk factors that, that we know are basically GERD, Barrett's esophagus related to that, obesity and smoking. And this is really these factors have, have really driven the increase in esophageal cancer. Unfortunately, longstanding reflux uh, within studies has been shown to be a significant risk factor for development of esophageal cancer. Next slide. So what can be done about GERD if you're having symptoms? Really the, the starting point for everyone is to eliminate lifestyle factors that may be contributing to GERD. Uh, a lot of these are talked about, for example, avoiding dietary triggers like fatty food, chocolate, alcohol, uh, sometimes spicy foods. Um, your, your doctors may have told you to basically eat sitting upright, avoid eating before you go to bed. 
um, and to keep the head of your bed elevated. Um, actually, none of these lifestyle modifications, though, have been shown to result in significant symptom reduction. Um, eating uh, not close to, to your bedtime and making sure that you're keeping your head elevated um, has been shown to reduce the, the measurable acid levels within the esophagus, but not enough to necessarily affect symptoms. So really the only two things that, that have data published um, to support them are weight loss, and that's very important for reducing acid reflux, and smoking cessation if you are a smoker. Beyond that, we start with medications um, to provide basically acid suppression therapy. Uh, most commonly, and the best medications we have right now are proton pump inhibitors, uh, which will be shown on the next slide. Um, but proton pump inhibitors are basically medications that shut off the acid pumps in the stomach and prevent or, or um, minimize acid production as much as possible. PPIs, as they're known, are, are one of the most um, common drugs in the U.S., uh, 100 million prescriptions, $14 billion in prescriptions um, in, in, uh, per year. Um, and there are several available. There really isn't one that's more effective than the other uh, in direct comparison. Next slide, please. So um, acid-blocking medications like PPIs uh, can be very effective, and often they're a great um, answer for acid reflux. Uh, we do know that these um, more recent or newer drugs of the PPIs are more effective than uh, what are called H2 blockers, which include medications like Zantac or Ranitidine um, or Tagamet or Cimetidine, or another one that's available on the market is Pepsid or Famotidine. Unfortunately, even with the more potent PPIs, though, about 30% of patients um, with erosive reflux disease, meaning acid reflux with changes of erosion or inflammation on endoscopy, and then 40% of patients with non-erosive disease do not respond well to PPIs and have refractory symptoms. Um, in these patients, there's actually, although we often try this, there's often, uh, there's actually no significant improvement when you double the dose of the PPI. Next slide, please. There are also a lot of potential uh, safety concerns about long-term PPI usage. So I don't think this should be oversold. I think actually these medications um, have proven so far to be overall very safe in the long run. But we do know that there are certain associations that uh, have raised concern and, and certain um, actually um, proven side effects of PPIs. So uh, we, we can talk more about this if people have questions later, but some lingering concerns include basically micronutrient deficiency. So in particular, long-term PPI usage is associated with low iron levels and low uh, vitamin B12 levels. We also know that in a select few patients, PPI usage can result in very low magnesium levels, and this can be threatening to your heart. Um, there have been reported associations between PPI use and dementia and chronic kidney disease. I think that that's something that's relatively controversial and we still have to suss out um, the link behind that. Um, but PPIs are associated with infections, in particular pneumonia, bacterial infections in the gut, and uh, something called C. difficile, which is an infection that's common in the in healthcare settings. Uh, next slide, please. 
So what are the alternatives to PPI? Since we know that there are potential uh, lingering safety concerns, there are a significant number of patients that have refractory GERD despite PPI usage. Um, one thing is you know, to think about basically anatomic or invasive interventions. The rationale behind this is because these medications suppress acid levels or block acid production, but they don't address the underlying anatomic causes of GERD itself. Uh, and the most important factor uh, anatomically is actually the competence or the tightness of the junction of your esophagus and stomach. So <clears throat> there have been a number of procedures that have been developed, endoscopic and surgical, uh, to kind of address this issue of competence at the gastroesophageal junction. Next slide. Um, <clears throat> so to, before we talk about these endoscopic interventions, I think it's helpful to, to address the anatomy or to explain the anatomy somewhat. So in these diagrams here, uh, the anatomy is laid out, and I have that for reference. Um, but if it's large enough, it might also be helpful. I'll just draw it out, and we can yeah, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that would be great. Um, so it's nice to have those illustrations because that's going to be a lot better than what I can draw. Um, but what we're basically looking at is the esophagus or the food pipe. And is that visible or is it not dark enough? Let me try the red. Yeah, there we go. That's a little bit better. Okay, so you have your food pipe and then the food pipe meets the stomach. Stomach is where the acid is being produced. Um, and where the esophagus or food pipe should meet the stomach should actually be within the abdomen. So below your chest cavity. What separates the abdomen and the chest cavity is a, your breathing muscle or what's called the diaphragm. Um, and there's a hole in the diaphragm that's uh, a hole that's supposed to be there where the esophagus comes down and enters the abdomen and then meets the stomach. There are a few different things that, that support the barrier um, at this junction uh, to prevent acid reflux. The first one is something called the lower esophageal sphincter. So you have muscle throughout the wall of the esophagus, but at the very bottom, there's a thicker band of muscle. And that muscle at baseline is contracted to help prevent acid from washing up from the stomach into the esophagus. This relaxes and it relaxes transiently uh, all the time in people. Um, but in general, it stays fairly tight, and then it only relaxes when you need food to pass through. The other thing that supports this barrier to prevent acid from washing up into the stomach is the diaphragm itself. So the diaphragm muscle around the esophagus helps to provide squeezing force or provide some um, or buttresses the lower esophageal sphincter. Um, then what also exists is something called the angle of hiss. So to make this more accurate, and what you can see in the illustrations is that the, the stomach itself has a pouch here called the fundus, and then it kind of bends down where it meets the esophagus. So that there's almost like what we call a flap valve of tissue. So due to that angulation, you have a flap of tissue that's kind of uh, blocking things from washing back up from the stomach to the esophagus. And all of these things can break down over time when um, 
uh, and promote acid reflux. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Maybe the next slide we could go to. Or do you have a comment, Andrea? Yeah, if you don't mind, we've got quite a few questions that are rolling in. So if you don't mind okay. answering some questions and then we can uh, continue with your slides, that would be fantastic. You, know, you had mentioned, uh, you know, GERD potentially progressing to Barrett's esophagus and Barrett's esophagus um, being a precursor for esophageal cancer. We actually have some questions coming up. Laura is basically asking, can the TIF procedure prevent getting Barrett's esophagus? Yeah, the short answer, the short answer that, to that is we don't know. Um, we do know that um, with the most aggressive anti-reflux procedure, something called the surgical Nissen fundification, um, while we have lower acid levels, there is not technically long-term data showing reduction in esophageal cancer. So um, certainly there are some patients where even putting them on an acid blocker can cause regression or disappearance of the Barrett's esophagus. Um, and extrapolating from that, anything to lower acid levels within the esophagus should in some patients um, cause regression. Uh, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, the TIF procedure is still relatively new, although it's been around for um, over a decade. So long-term data to prove that this would reduce your esophageal cancer risk, um, you know, definitively is not present. Um, but the hope is if we're reducing acid levels, reducing uh, recurrent injury to the lower esophagus, that um, we're also helping to prevent esophageal cancer. Thank you for that. And I cannot remember or not if you in your presentation get into the diagnostic testing, but we do have a question from Matthew. He's asking, what workups do you recommend to diagnose GERD? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that the, um, you know, the first thing is always a history to go over the symptoms and to see do these correlate with GERD or are there potentially other things that are suggested by the pattern of the symptoms. Um, in most patients, in particular, once they've not had a response to a trial of a PPI, if there are persistent reflex symptoms, then the next step is an upper endoscopy, uh, where under sedation, we're passing a camera through the mouth down into the food pipe to look, number one, for other reasons for symptoms, such as esophageal cancer, um, and then two, to assess for objective evidence of acid reflux, like inflammation or ulcers. There are some patients that don't have any, uh, there are many patients that don't have any abnormal findings on upper endoscopy, but still have GERD. And the options for um, further testing include a couple different studies that actually look at the objective acid levels within the esophagus. Um, one is called a pH Bravo study, another is a pH impedance test. Perfect, thank you. Uh, this is an interesting question uh, from Mike. He's asking, do symptoms of GERD and COVID overlap? Do symptoms of GERD and COVID? Mm -hmm. Potentially some of the atypical symptoms of GERD, um, in particular chronic cough or sore throat uh, could overlap with, with COVID. Uh, we would think that, in general, the symptoms of GERD are going to be uh, more chronic. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully if you got COVID, it would be a relatively mild case and it would go away. Um, but it would be more of an acute presentation um, and as opposed to the GERD. So GERD, you know, it, it certainly can 
develop, in particular if you've had recent weight gain, it can be new, um, but it tends to be something that would be a more persistent problem than any viral infection. Thank you. Uh, one more question and then we can go back to the presentation because I think a lot of these questions might get answered as as you go through your uh, presentation, but a car I believe her name is Carmen, is asking or, or mentioning, I was diagnosed with Barrett's esophagus with a hiatal hernia in 2019. I'm considering ablation. What are possible side effects? And then she goes on, does the esophagus stop being able to function in the areas where the ablation occurs? Is the ability to eat affected after the ablation pros and cons? Yeah, so the, um, the side effects, the long-term side effects of Barrett's ablation are fairly minimal, although there definitely are potential long-term complications. Up front, the, the um, adverse effects or side effects that occur in response to ablation vary a lot from patient to patient in terms of how sensitive they are to the ablation. Uh, certainly sometimes, in particular, if you have a long segment of Barrett's, you can have a fair amount of chest uh, discomfort or uh, increased sensitivity to acid that is present. So you, it could feel like you have an ulcer, things feel raw, or you have more burning um, as the tissue heals in response to the ablation. Um, the long-term um, complications that we think of uh, in the things where we would think, okay, there is some disruption of the function of the esophagus relate to scarring that happens in response to the ablation. So in particular, when you have long segments or you have circumferential bears, meaning it goes all the way around the esophagus, um, and all of that is treated at once, there can be increased risk of scar tissue that causes difficulty swallowing that we typically treat by stretching out the scar tissue. Um, whether or not the, the ablation is worth it in terms of risk-benefit balance really depends on whether or not you have dysplasia or um, there has been advancement along the spectrum of Barrett's esophagus to esophageal cancer. Um, the the risk-benefit profile also depends on how advanced that dysplasia is, so there's low grade and high grade. Um, in general, we would say if you have Barrett's esophagus alone, uh, the rate of cancer um, development is only about one in 400 per year. Um, so the annual rate of development is still low and if you have Barrett's esophagus with no dysplasia, it's not worth the risk of complications of ablation. Thank you. Last question, and then we'll pop up your slides again. Um, if uh, Shane's asking, if I think I have GERD, who should I see first? That's an interesting question, right? Do they see their PCP? Do they see their GI? Do they see a, a surgeon? Uh, this is a great question. Yeah, I would say start with your PCP or your um, GI doctor if you have one. Uh, certainly, I know it can be frustrating to navigate uh, the, the medical field and get these appointments. So usually your access is best to your primary care doctor uh, rather than a subspecialist. Um, and, and it's often very appropriate to start a short-term trial of acid-blocking medications um, to, you know, as sort of a, a diagnostic uh, treatment trial to see is this GERD, um, but if you need longer-term medications or you're not responding to these medications, it's appropriate to, to ask for the referral to a GI doctor. Thank you. And then we'll pop up your uh, slides real quick and get back to um, probably the next slide. 
here. Yeah. So in this slide, uh, you know, apart from what I tried to draw on the, the picture um, on the left, so when you're looking at the screen, uh, just shows more of the normal stomach anatomy. And in particular, the bottom picture shows the different layers of muscle in the, in the stomach. The one thing that that's showing where there's kind of a window cut out is, is um, what we call oblique muscle fibers. So there are three layers of muscle in the stomach. These oblique fibers help form a sling, which makes the angle of hiss or that angle that forms sort of a flap valve mechanism. Um, it, it keeps that structure intact. This is actually something that is not very well developed in infants or newborns, which is one of the reasons that they have uh, a lot of reflux. Um, then on the right, you can see what happens when all of these anatomic barriers to reflex start to break down. So frequently, the first thing that happens is that you have um, a widening of the hole in the diaphragm, and that's called the diaphragm hiatus. Uh, and you may have heard the term hiatal hernia, which develops when this hole gets bigger, and oftentimes that's just with age um, or straining. And that allows the stomach to slip up into the chest cavity. And um, in, in the illustration, I showed that pouch. But basically, then what you have is that the stomach is coming up higher into the chest cavity. You have a pouch here. And really, now your esophageal sphincter is way up in the chest. The reason this hernia can develop over time is there are a number of connective tissue ligaments that usually are attaching the diaphragm to the esophagus, and those can break down. The problem with the hiatal hernia is that the sphincter uh, and the angle of hiss become distorted. So you lose that angle, you lose that flap valve as the stomach is pouching up into the chest. The lower esophagus um, junction with the stomach is also no longer at the diaphragm. So that buttressing or support from the diaphragm uh, isn't present to help prevent acid reflux. And then the, the lower esophageal sphincter, since it's in the chest cavity, as you're breathing, you're making a, a vacuum to suck in air. That also keeps sucking on the lower esophageal sphincter, holds it open so more acid can wash up. And then finally, the hernia itself acts as a little sac or pouch where acid can pool. So it's already up in the chest cavity and it much more freely is washing back and forth into the, the esophagus higher up. Um, next slide. So to correct these anatomic problems, the conventional or traditional um, intervention that was offered is an anti-reflux surgery. And really the standard for this is something called a laparoscopic misinfundiplication. This can be very effective at correcting the anatomy by pulling the hernia back down into the chest cavity. What's then done is the diaphragm is tightened around the es esophagus. And then finally, the stomach is wrapped around itself to kind of create more of a high pressure zone or an area of tightness to prevent acid from washing up. Um, the problem, really the long-term problem with anti-reflux surgery, and one of the reasons uh, I think GI doctors have been so reluctant to refer patients for the surgery, sometimes you know, to the point where it's, there's too much reluctance. Um, but really the issue that, that we see that can be tough to deal with afterwards are structural side effects. And these are related to, to basically making things too tight at the junction of the stomach and esophagus. 
whereas acid can't wash up, um, but also air uh, can't wash up. So people um, can get something called gas bloat syndrome, where they feel a lot of gas and bloating and distension since air is not escaping. Um, as a consequence, they can actually feel like they don't have the ability to burp uh, or belch. And these are pretty common symptoms. So gas bloat occurs about 30% of the time. Over half of people report difficulty um, belching. And then about a third of people can actually um, have difficulty vomiting. So if you got food poisoning or something else is making you nauseated uh, and you feel like you want to vomit, you just have dry heaves and nothing actually is able to come up. Uh, since the air can't go up, you also have more flatulence since the air has to go out the other direction. Um, and then finally, if things are tight enough, uh, about 10% of the time people can have difficulty swallowing because food can't pass through the esophagus easily enough. So um, in response to these issues with actual conventional surgery, you know, we've looked for basically endoscopic interventions. So there are a number of interventions available. I'm happy to talk about all of these. Um, so I think that the, the best um, established uh, intervention is endoscopic fundoplication or a procedure that we call TIF. Um, this has uh, long-term data regarding the safety, efficacy, and durability. Um, and it also has uh, definitely the, the most robust data in terms of what's published in the literature regarding efficacy and safety. The other procedures we do offer here, and there are certain um, anatomic variations that make these procedures appropriate, um, but what they, what they all entail is basically cutting tissue or suturing tissue together just to make things tighter at the GE junction. Um, what is uh, a side effect of that is that you can still have difficulty swallowing about 10% of the time. So that is not seen with endoscopic fundoplication, and the endoscopic fundoplication or the TIF addresses these anatomic breakdowns a little bit better. Next slide. Um, so I think we can skip through these for now. These are just diagrams showing um, some of the other anti-reflux procedures. Uh, one reason we're very excited about TIF and we think it's a great option for patients um, uh, is basically it has a much better long-term side effect profile than conventional surgery. So all of these things we were just talking about, like gas bloat, increased flatulence, difficulty swallowing, occur at very, very low rates um, after TIF. And really the rates are about zero to 1% for most side effects. Next slide. So here's uh, just a couple of pictures showing you what the TIF procedure is. Um, so what's done during the procedure is basically a device is introduced through the esophagus down into the stomach. And then the scope or camera, which is the black tube in the picture on the right, um, can be advanced through the device and then it's bent backwards so we can look up at the junction of the esophagus and stomach. Next slide. The device is then used to grasp the tissue right at the junction of the esophagus and stomach, pull the tissue downward, and then wrap the stomach from the inside around the lower esophagus. We then have these uh, fasteners that are applied to basically connect the tissue together um, to maintain a, a durable or create a durable structure. And so the end result is that we have this sort of flat valve again, or what we call a nipple valve, 
uh, as a barrier uh, to acid reflux. Um, this is actually something that can be permanent because the outer layer of the stomach and the outer layer of the esophagus fuse together after these fasteners have been applied. Next slide. Uh, again, there is good data now, long-term results um, after TIF, um, but basically, in summary, about 80% of people have significant improvement in uh, classic and atypical uh, symptoms of acid reflux, and there's significant improvement in um, what's called the GERD HRQL, which is a symptom score regarding um, related to um, health-related quality of life. Next slide. Um, also, the TIF can be effective at getting you off of PPIs. Um, about 30% of patients, uh, as opposed to 100% of patients, um, need to take PPIs five years after the TIF. Uh, what's important to remember about this is that these patients in, this in these studies all have refractory symptoms to acid reflux. So yes, some people do have to return to daily PPIs, but it's with better symptom control. Next slide. Here's just a summary looking at all of the, the published studies, uh, looking at outcomes regarding TIF. But again, we see about 80% symptom reduction, 80% healing of, of inflammation in the esophagus, and close to 80% um, health-related uh, patient satisfaction. Next slide. So um, I think if there are questions, this might be a good time to break. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. I was just looking, they were coming in, so I was wanting to make sure that we get to them. You have a question, and you are answering most of the questions that are coming through, but um, with, with the presentation, so thank you very much, so educational. Uh, Tom is asking, you know, I've been on PPIs for over 15 years, should I be concerned about long-term use? And I think you kind of mentioned that, maybe, maybe you can answer directly to him. To him. Yeah, there, um, you know, the, the principle with any medication is the lower the dose uh, that can be achieved, uh, the better. And also the less time you take it, the better. That being said, you know, if, if the PPIs are working um, and uh, significantly improving your quality of life, uh, there are certain side effects that could be looked for or monitored for. Um, but I don't think that if, if it's actually effective right now, it's necessary to, to stop these medications. Um, there are specific side effects like diarrhea that happen with the PPIs, or if you know sometimes patients start to see um, you know a bone fracture, they have osteoporosis, and there can be concerns about PPIs um, and fracture risk. Uh, in these instances, sometimes primary care doctors will often tell people you, you need to find an alternative. Um, but if it's working and there are no side effects, then uh, at the lowest dose possible, I think it's good to continue. Um, I take Nexium for gastritis. Will TIF help me? And this is from Phil. Yeah, that, that depends. You know, technically, a TIF is not addressing uh, acid irritation within the stomach. It's more um, addressing uh, acid reflux. Uh, that being said, gastritis is a, a fairly common sort of catch-all term that's used to describe uh, upper abdominal pain and, and is very subjective. So it's not uh, uncommon at all to see a little bit of redness in the stomach um, when you do an upper endoscopy. And unfortunately, when there's no other clear cause, gastritis also often becomes a diagnosis. Um, so if you do have uh, acid-related pain that's more related to the stomach, 
the TIF is not going to address that, um, but it might be worth evaluation to see, you know, is this actually acid reflux that the PPI or the next team is treating, not gastritis. Thank you. We are getting some questions uh, about um, post-op TIF uh, procedure and um, particularly the diet and exercise and how quickly can they get back to their normal life um, after the TIF procedure. Yeah, so yeah, so uh, post-op, there is definitely um, restriction of your diet and activity. Um, the, the dietary changes are most significant in the first week or so. Um, but the kind of standard post-op protocol is that once you've had the TIF for a day or two, you're on something called the clear liquid diet. This includes basically things that are translucent um, and not solid. So broth, uh, jello, uh, you know, you can have different basically um, nutritional supplement drinks as long as they're see-through. Um, that's that's for a relatively short period of time. Uh, for the next week or so, then you're on something called the full liquid diet, and that's a bit of a misnomer, but it includes um, things that are kind of the consistency of pudding, um, cottage cheese, uh, yogurt, um, or similar substances or porridge. Um, and really, this is to, to limit the stress on the, the junction of the esophagus and stomach where this valve structure has been created. But also, you're going to have swelling in response to the procedure. So things will be temporarily more narrow than they're going to be in the long run due to the swelling. So we don't want you to have symptoms of food sticking um, until the swelling resolves. After that week of full liquid diet, then you know for the next five weeks or so, so about six weeks total of dietary restriction, you're on what we call a soft diet. So you're avoiding big chunks of meat, raw, uncooked vegetables, things that would be more likely to stick on the way down. Um, Activity-wise, the, the main thing is we just don't want you to strain too much, so we don't want you to put excess stress on this, this kind of fresh valve structure. Um, and really, lifting for the first couple weeks, we recommend you lift nothing more than five pounds. Uh, the rest of that six-week period post-procedure when you're on restrictions, you should limit um, lifting to about 25 pounds. People vary a lot in terms of their baseline functioning, and certainly I've had people that run multiple miles per day and they want to start day one. Uh, you know, I think it just varies on your baseline, but we, we say don't push it with very, very strenuous exercise for that six-week period. Yeah, and we get a lot of questions. Is there a difference in healing time um, from just having a straight TIF procedure and or doing that combined procedure, the hiatohernia TIF procedure, is there a difference as far as uh, recovery um, and recovery time? Yeah, the, the, um, in general, the combined procedure, since it involves incisions through the abdominal wall and there is a laparoscopic surgery component, there can be a little bit more soreness. So the TIF, you're, you're usually in the hospital for zero days or one night. Um, uh, depending on the level of your nausea and pain after the procedure. Um, almost always following the surgical uh, endoscopic hybrid procedure, you're in the hospital for the initial night. Usually you can still go home the next day, although the, the soreness level tends to be a little bit higher. Thank you. Uh, and then we've got a question, does the TIF help with LPR? Uh, yes, so the the so the the TIF, and this is something that's 
unique in terms of uh, comparing TIF to some uh, different endoscopic interventions that you may have heard of, such as the strata or radiofrequency ablation. Um, but TIF, you know, very specifically in these studies looking at outcomes after TIF, they address these atypical symptoms um, like throat clearing, phlegm in the throat, chronic cough, um, and the, the data holds for atypical symptoms uh, in that we see 80% reduction at five years. Uh, I think that's all the questions we have for now. Just a lot of people saying, yay, I got the TIF. It's been fantastic. I'm off my meds and whatnot. So lots of dialogue happening within everybody. Um, were there more slides that you wanted to go through? Uh, or or um, let me just double check and make sure there's no other questions here. Um, yeah, the, the last thing I would just address is when we do the hybrid procedure rather than the endoscopic TIF alone, TIF alone. Um, uh, just uh, just to throw that out there, because unfortunately, a lot of people that get referred for TIF alone don't qualify because of their anatomy. But the main determinant is the size of the hiatal hernia. And we just know that if you have a, a significant hernia, although it can be reduced during the TIF procedure, the issue is that the, if you have a large hernia, you have a large hole in the diaphragm. Um, and even if we reduce or pull down the hernia, it can very easily recur and, and you, you're left with some of the same issues. So we know the outcomes of TIF, if you try to do it on a patient with a large hernia, are very suboptimal. And that's where we have the hybrid procedure where we actually have the surgeon pull down the stomach and then reduce um, the size of that diaphragm hole by suturing the diaphragm. But instead of doing the surgical wrap of the stomach, you have the endoscopic fundoplication or wrap or the TIF. And the rationale for that is basically to, to get the durability um, and efficacy of the surgical hernia repair while avoiding these long-term structural side effects that happen with the Nissen. Uh, and this has been studied. There are a few different studies that have been published looking at outcomes. Um, we see, again, very good symptom reduction. Um, about 75% of patients never have to take a PPI after the hybrid procedure. Uh, and if anything, actually, the objective acid levels uh, within the es esophagus are lower or better uh, than after the TIF alone. Um, and the, the, the goal of doing the hybrid procedure, which is avoiding these long-term side effects, seems to be bearing out and that there are not um, increased rates of the gas bloat or difficulty vomiting or, or burping um, that are seen. Yeah, to address that, uh, we did get a question that came in in regards to that. Uh, they're saying from someone who suffers from vagus nerve syncope, excuse me, symptoms as a result of my hiatal hernia, would the TIF procedure pose any risk to my vagus nerve? Nerve. Yeah, overall, the the um, rates of uh, vagal nerve injury or consequences of that. Um, are very, very low. So really, the, actually, the rates of any kind of structural complication following the TIF are about 0.4%. Um, that, that being said, you know, the vagus nerve is not completely protected um, uh, with the TIF. So we are still putting fasteners through um, the, the wall of the stomach uh, in an area where the vagus nerve is. Because we're grasping things from the, the inside, uh, the risk of collateral tissue basically getting involved um, is very, very low. Uh, but if you if you watch the TIF procedure with the surgeon when they have the, the cameras in the abdomen, 
you can see that the vagus nerve is still close by. So I, I don't think it would be impossible, um, although I think it's very rare. Thank you. Another question from Phil. Do you, uh, you do your own Bravo, or would I see another doctor first to do that? I live in the Bay Area. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, we um, we don't. So the, the way our practice is set up is we do exclusively interventional endoscopy. Uh, and we, uh, you know, again, are very high volume. And I think that lets us focus and develop expertise and great outcomes with these procedures. Um, a lot of these procedures, of course, require diagnostic evaluation beforehand, um, including the TIF. Uh, so we do have somebody within the same center and the same endoscopy unit um, that works with motility-related issues and then also performs some of these uh, di diagnostic tests. So in general, you know, we, we set it up as um, sort of a one-stop shop and that you're able to get those studies here, but it would technically be with a different uh, another question uh, for GERD and Barrett's esophagus and heartburn. Are there any medications that work per for a permanent cure for the disease? Disease? Uh, no, yeah. you know, with the with GERD, um, the symptoms, including heartburn, and then the potential consequences, of Barrett's esophagus. There's no cure. Um, there are some patients who have GERD who start a PPI, they can see regression of the Barrett's esophagus, although that's not the norm. Um, really the, the main potential cure that doesn't involve an invasive intervention in terms of correcting the anatomy that's promoting reflux is weight loss if you do have um, uh, you know, some extra weight on you. Uh, Virginia is asking, because the supplement DGL produces more mucus, does this help GERD? Uh, I'm not familiar with that uh, acronym or what that supplement would be. Um, there are medications, I don't think this is exactly what's being referred to, but something called alginate medications, which are a derivative of seaweed. Um, so what that does is it forms a buffer uh, that almost floats at the top of the stomach and helps uh, prevent acid reflux. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know, and I, I don't know, I would be speculating. If, if the mucus production uh, produced by this compound uh, would help our, um, one way. Perfect. Well, I think that's all the questions we have tonight. Um, I'm not sure if there was any other topics that you wanted to touch on before we kind of conclude for the evening. Um, you know, one of the questions I always ask the physicians when they're doing these talks is, you know, what's the one um, piece of advice that you would give a patient that was suffering from GERD, what do you think that they need to do? Um, you know, whatever that is, whether they see a gastroenterologist, um, you know, do they advocate for themselves? What What would you um, suggest? For yeah, I mean, really, I mean, really, I would say don't suffer. There are a lot of options. And I think that there are some preliminary measures that are taken by um, most physicians. But uh, beyond that, uh, these, these are, this is an issue that people end up dealing with chronically for their entire life and it definitely limits their quality of life um, but i think there are a lot of options and including different medications that can be tried um, so you know it's worth reaching out and, and regaining some of your, your former enjoyment with food and 
um, you know, all of the good things that life has to offer. Right. And if you could please remind everybody that's watching or may watch this in the future, where are you located? How can they get a hold of you if they'd like to schedule an appointment with you in your practice? Yeah, so we are based um, out of California Pacific Medical Center. Uh, we're at the center. Uh, we're at the new hospital, which is at the corner of Van Ness and Geary. Um, we do have a, a couple different contacts that can be uh, good ways to reach out, but there's an email address. So I think that's up at the corner of the screen. It is. advisor at IESmedgroup.com. Um, this uh, will put you in touch with uh, somebody on our staff that has basically been trained uh, to, to gather information required to, to evaluate these GERD cases. So definitely, you know, we're happy to help coordinate studies if you haven't had them. Uh, but we also don't want to push you, put you through things unnecessarily a second time. Um, so we, you know, are, are definitely able to help gather these records and decide what, if anything else, needs to be done before intervention. Um, for more information, we also have a website called nacidreflux.com. Uh, our overall group, if you have other endoscopic needs, uh, is, is, uh, has a website at iesmedgroup.com. And then the phone number um, that you can call uh, is 415-600-1151. Perfect. Thank you so much. I'm sorry uh, that Dr. Josart wasn't able to uh, join us this evening. We'll definitely have to invite him to the next one with us uh, so we can discuss a little bit more about um, that kind of partnership with you and, and the hiatal hernia portion of the uh, CTIF, if you will, combined TIF procedure. But thank you again for your time and uh, all of the, the information that you provided. I know that the people that are watching really appreciate um, the education from you. I know he, uh, we at Endogastric Solutions appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak with us this evening. Uh, but uh, and uh, on that note, um, I can't thank you enough. And um, we, oh, sorry, there is one other thing, I apologize. If you are watching and you are not in the San Francisco or Bay Area, um, you can get on to girdhelp.com. We do have a physician finder there and you can put in your zip code and or state and you'd be able to find a physician in your area. Um, but again, thank you for all of your time. Thank you, Dr. Nett, thank uh, you. The lights are turning off on me and I guess it's a science over, huh? Really cool, we're gonna get a light show. <laughs> Um, we can't thank you enough for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. And for those of you that joined and asked questions, thank you for joining us this evening. And we'll definitely catch you next time, next Tuesday for our next TIFF Talk. So thank you everyone and have a great evening. If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit girdhelp.com or download our GERD Help mobile app. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERD Help. Live well, GERD free.